This morning I'm reading from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father too, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. And this is the word of God. Well, this morning we begin a series, as you have just seen, called Misunderstanding Jesus. And the reality is that it is entirely possible that you could be quite involved in church and not get Jesus. You could uh, have grown up with a spiritual heritage to be envied by others and somehow miss Jesus. And this series will, uh, ahead of Easter, really just go after the resurrection and look at Jesus' appearances to folks after the resurrection, not just any old people, meaning the large crowd that didn't get him beforehand, and certainly they're not going to get him after, but, but folks who spent quite a bit of time with Jesus and somehow misunderstood him. Uh, misunderstanding uh, can lead to some grave consequences, can it? Wendy and I have had, through the years of our marriage, uh, about 12 or 13 kids live with us other than our own. Uh, different circumstances, we fostered uh, at one point, and, uh, and then just some of them just seemed quite random, um, uh, but uh, we've had three exchange students who lived with us. One's name was Fadi. Fadi was 16 years old, so he was quite young to be an exchange student. He was from the Middle East, and uh, he was uh, the most, uh, as we look across all the exchange students, immature of anyone who lived with us. There is a rule that uh, I divulged you know, on the live feed, uh, so uh, I'm probably forever fired from having an exchange student that when you have one, they are never allowed behind a, a wheel of a, a, of a motorized vehicle. Uh, you just can't let them drive. Well, in my mind, that rule meant big one, um, not go-kart. And so one day, Fadi and I, Wendy is at work, it's, it's in the spring, and Fadi and I are... Um, uh, outside and I'm working and he sees the go-kart and he asked if he could drive it. And I, uh, to my uh, chagrin, said yes. And so he got on it. I didn't realize he had never driven a thing in his life. And he got on that go-kart, which thankfully had roll bars. You know where I'm going. And 
It thankfully had roll bars on top. It was uh, seat belted in. It was from Sears down here. You remember where you, when you could go to Sears and Marion and buy a, a go-kart? It was one of those. It would go pretty fast. And so Fadi heads down the back drive, and then I'm watching, and he's going to turn into that field. Uh, but he didn't know you should break before you turn. And so he's going super fast when he turns and I look and the go-kart is just rolling and it lands on its top. And when it does, Fadi is just yelling and moaning and the problem is that Fadi had a habit of moaning when life was good. So that didn't trigger anything in me as it should, though I ran down and I just went over and flipped the thing over on its top, at which point it landed and he moaned again. And then the neighbor came over and wrapped a towel and said, you better go to the hospital. It's probably broken. So we get in my truck. We're headed down the road to the hospital. I call Wendy to tell her what's going on. Meanwhile, Fatty is sitting in the passenger side moaning, and I'm looking at him saying, hush, because he moaned a lot. We get to the hospital, and when we do, we go through, uh, and, and he has an x-ray, and some things happen. Dylan Saladin, who's sitting here, was working that day, and so Dylan's taking care of us, and things are going on, and, um, and the x-ray's done, and I was in the room with Fadi, and I saw something, and I thought, this doesn't seem quite right, and I said, Fadi, could you just move your arm just a bit for me? And when he did, I saw blood. I said, Dylan, um, there's blood. He said, what? And he's been x-rayed. Well, the reason there was blood is because the bone had poked through the skin of his arm. I'm telling Fatty to hush. <laughs> Meanwhile, bone is protruding through his arm as we're driving down uh, Interstate 40, headed to the hospital. Total misunderstanding on my part. Misunderstanding someone can have grave consequences. And what is striking about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances is if I've done my study correctly, everybody that he spent time with misunderstood him. Everyone uh, that he spent years with, they watched him uh, perform miracles. They were part of the miracles themselves. They saw him walk on water. They were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw him take a little boy's lunch and feed thousands with it. And Mary Magdalene is one of those who misunderstood Jesus. Let's get her backstory because it's so significant. Mary Magdalene is called that because she, she was from Magdala. Magdala, a city on the southwest uh, side of the Sea of Galilee. Magdala, a city known for its prostitution in that day. Some have, because of that, assumed that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, but there's no evidence of that. But here's what was wrong with her when she and Jesus met. She was possessed by demons. And they weren't uh, just uh, one demon, as if that wouldn't be enough uh, she was possessed by seven. 
And seven demons then means either she was totally possessed because that's the number of completion or it's a literal number. Mary Magdalene was possessed by demons and Jesus spoke her name and he called her to himself and he cast out her demons. And she began to follow him. Jesus made a statement, not about Mary Magdalene, but it could definitely describe her. In Luke 7, 47, he said, Therefore I tell you, her sins, speaking of another woman, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Mary Magdalene was forgiven much. And as a result, she loved much, so much that she immediately began to follow Jesus. It appears to be early in his ministry. She begins to follow Jesus, and when she does, Mary Magdalene is with him through thick and thin. She is there at his mock trial. She hears Pontius Pilate announce his sentence. She watches him beaten by the Romans. She is there when he is crucified and she uh, is now here on resurrection day thinking he's dead. She's come to anoint his body but she cannot find it and she is moved to tears and she's weeping. It is from Mary Magdalene's interactions on this Resurrection Sunday that we discover two ways you and I misunderstand Jesus today. First of all, we misunderstand Jesus when we misunderstand his words. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I do not know where they have laid them. Jesus is dead in her mind. She isn't considering the possibility he could be alive. And having turned this, she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know it was him. Uh, Why? Is it because Mary's eyes are so full of tears she cannot recognize Jesus? That's possible. Is it possible that as we'll discover through this series, uh, when Jesus met those men on the Emmaus Road and they were telling him how uh, downtrodden they were because Jesus had died, they were kept from recognizing him? Is it possible that she was kept from recognizing Jesus? That's possible. We don't know. But what we are privy to is the fact that Jesus said this would happen. Mark records this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, this is, this is uh, years prior, two to three years prior, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Jesus referring to himself, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Jesus told them this would happen. But look at the next sentence. But they did not understand the saying, and they were what? Afraid to ask him. There was a certain fear that they had of asking Jesus what he meant by that. 
I wonder if some of you in here this morning have that same fear. Things in your life aren't going as you thought they would or should. And you'd like to ask Jesus why. But you're afraid. Uh, maybe you think it would be disrespectful. But perhaps you think that, that faithful people don't have difficult questions of God. But I would encourage you to walk with others who've walked with God a long time and you'll discover that those who've walked with God a long time have questions of him. They were afraid to ask. Mary Magdalene misunderstood Jesus because she misunderstood his words. But secondly, uh, we misunderstand Jesus when we misunderstand his mission. Don't miss when Mary Magdalene recognized Jesus. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. As soon as Jesus said her name, she knew who it was. She knew it was Jesus. John 10, verses 3 and 4 say, The sheep, Jesus is talking here, hear his voice. He's talking about himself as the good shepherd. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Jesus called Mary by name and Mary knew his voice and she immediately clung to him. Could I ask you a question this morning? This might be the most personally riveting question of the sermon. Do you walk with Jesus in such a way that when he calls your name, you know his voice? Do you daily, as that old song in the garden says, walk with him and talk with him so that the absence of his voice bothers you? So that when the busyness of your life drowns out the voice of God, you notice. Mary had spent three years or so with him, uh, long enough to know when he said her name. D.A. Carson writes, anguish and despair are quickly swallowed up by astonishment and delight. Everything changes when she knows it's Jesus and she hears his voice. This week in Life Group, you will together watch the first episode of The Chosen. Don't know if you've seen The Chosen. If you haven't, download the app. It's a remarkable production of the life of Jesus. It's powerful. And the first episode is the story of Mary Magdalene. Amazingly well done. 
Jesus' response to Mary Magdalene is surprising and seems even insensitive and offensive. He said to her, do not cling to me, or as some translations render it, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You see, Mary clung to Jesus as her teacher. That's what she called him, Rabboni, as her teacher. However, since Jesus had died and rose from the dead, everything had changed. Jesus was not only her teacher, he was her savior. He had saved her from demon possession three years ago. What she didn't realize was that three days ago, he had saved her from hell. And those are two different things, aren't they? You see, Jesus may do something physically for you, or he may not. But what he promises to do for you is a work from the inside out. A work that starts here, that works its way out, that causes you to be different and talk different and act differently and, and walk differently and go and hang out with different kinds of people. She misunderstood his mission. John comments in chapter two, so the Jews said to him, to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I find it interesting that John writes in chapter two of, of after the resurrection saying that once Jesus resurrected, they remembered this conversation, but evidently in this, Jesus had spoken scripture or they went to the scripture and connected it to what Jesus said. So listen, class, what scripture is available immediately after Jesus resurrects? What is it? Say it loud. The what? All right, so I've heard nothing yet. All right, so what is the only scripture available post-resurrection at that point? What is it? Say it out. The Old Testament. There's no new yet. It's yet to be penned. It's yet to be written. And so Jesus went, we'll discover, on the Emmaus Road into the Old Testament. And when he did, he began to teach himself. All of a sudden, things are clicking for the disciples. And Jesus' mission makes more sense as they lean on the teaching of the Old Testament. And they put that together with Jesus' words. I would ask you this morning, do you misunderstand Jesus? Jesus didn't heal everyone in the New Testament. Does that bother you? Jesus hasn't stopped the war in Ukraine. Does that concern you? Do you wonder why? Jesus um, hasn't yet brought home your wayward child. You're still praying. Does that cause you to question? 
Jesus has yet to save your lost spouse. You come to worship alone. Does that cause your faith to waver? Could I say, rather than focus on what Jesus hasn't done, consider what he has done. I'm reading a book called Deeper by Dane Ortland, And he writes this, some of us look at the evidence of our lives, mindful of the pain we've endured. And we do not know how to respond except with cold cynicism. The love of Christ, we wonder? Is this a joke? You're living in la-la land, Dane. This all sounds nice in theory, but look at the wreckage of my life. I know deep down in my bones I was created to be a palace, magnificent and stately, but I'm a pile of bombed out rubble given the way others have treated me, wronged me, victimized me. My life disproves the love of Christ. He writes, if you're having thoughts like that as you hear of Christ's love, I want you to know that you're looking at the wrong life. Your life doesn't disprove Christ's love. His life proves it. In heaven, the eternal son of God was palatial magnificence, if anything ever was. But he became a man. And instead of ruling in glorious authority, as one would expect of God become man, he was rejected and killed. His own life was reduced to bombed out rubble. Why? So that he could sweep sinful you into his deepest heart and never let you go. Having satisfied the Father's righteous wrath toward you in his atoning death. Your suffering does not define you, his does. You have endured pain involuntarily. He has endured pain voluntarily for you. Your pain is meant to push you to flee to him where he endured what you deserve. If Jesus was himself willing to journey down into the suffering of hell, you can bank everything on his love as you journey through your own suffering on your way up to heaven. Your life doesn't disprove Christ's love. His life proves it. So as you consider what may look like bombed out rubble to you right now, would you look on the one who was palatial but was made pathetic? who was served but became servant. Who was majestic, glorious, all-powerful, but became weak Worn, weary, Jesus looks at Mary Magdalene and he says, stop clinging to me. I'm not that Jesus. 
I'm way more than your teacher. I'm your savior. Verse 17, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Again, if I've done my study correctly, this is the first time Jesus refers to the disciples as brothers. Hmm. Why? Because when he died and when he rose, he started a family. The family of God. That would now include the Jews who believe and all the other Gentiles who would too. My father and your father, my God and your God is how he describes it. Galatians 4, 7. Paul reflecting on this reality says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? What does it say? Adoption. As sons, as daughters. And because you're a son, a daughter, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. A couple weeks ago, we were on vacation in Florida, and it was uh, our, our family, son, and our daughter and son-in-law. So Michael and Hannah and Wendy and me and, and one of Trent's friends. On Wednesday, Hannah had arranged to drive to Tampa, Florida. About two hours and a half or 2.45 away. Hannah works for the Children's Home Society. Her job with them is to place difficult children into permanent homes. They're difficult placements because they are sibling groups, so it's hard to find a home that will take more than one child or they're older. It's hard to find a mom, dad who will take in an older child or they have some disability. But she had cleared through with Children's Home Society to drive to Tampa because a 17-year-old girl, Kayla, was being adopted. 17. She had been in the system 11 years. Imagine all the homes that she had been in and out of those 11 years. But now Kayla would have a permanent mom and dad as a 17-year-old. That's us. I was 15 when... 
on a Tuesday night, God called me to himself and caused me to be born again into a living hope and adopted me into his family. I, I was 15. 15 years spent as an orphan. Adopted. Um, this week I learned of a, of a man who in his 70s, gave his life to Christ. Wow. God is in the business of adopting, isn't he? Expanding the family, growing his family. I want to ask you a question this morning. This week, have you uh, well, let me let me just say this. Wouldn't it be wouldn't it be sadly strange if if Kayla were to walk out the front door of her adoptive home down the street, begging for food? If the cupboards were full and the pantry overflowing, her adoptive parents would go find her and say, "Why?" We, we, we got everything you need. Have some of you done that this week? Your father has sent the spirit of his son into your heart that causes you to cry out, Abba, or Daddy. But some of you have gone back to the old cupboard, haven't you, this week? You've pulled off the shelf worry. You've grabbed from that cupboard lust, anxiety, doubt. You've misunderstood Jesus again. Mary Magdalene followed him three years in person. I would say if you've misunderstood him, you might be in good company. But if you were to quieten yourself for long enough, you might hear him call your name. He still does.